Hello and welcome to the 100 Podcast. It's Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. Today, we are doing our final 100 draft preview. The draft is coming out. The picks are going to be announced on Tuesday. We will have a reaction podcast coming out on the Wednesday. We'll have reaction all day on our Twitter account, at Podcast 100. But before the draft starts, we wanted to do a final draft preview, taking a look at what we think is going to happen, explaining some of the trends that we think might happen and try and give you basically an insight into what the draft might look like come Tuesday. First of all, Charlie, what was your reaction when the overseas player list came out? I would say I had two reactions and one changed into the other pretty quickly. My first reaction was, wow, there's some really big names here. This is quite fun. And then I realized, ah, most of these big names won't actually be available for more than two games. So they probably won't play or get picked. Um, that was basically what I felt. Um, there's a few interesting talking points, I think. The more I looked down, I realized, you know, there are some big names in here. Maybe some of them are slightly past their sell-by date. Maybe some that won't play, as I said. Maybe there's some guys who are actually quite good value. They're not the biggest names, but they're good players who are maybe pretty cheap. Um, on the whole, I was pretty happy with it, to be fair. So let's take a look at who is uh, in the top reserve price brackets uh, in the overseas players list. As always, overseas players can set their price brackets at 125K, 100K, 75K, 60K, 50K, 40K, or no reserve. Uh, There are loads of players down the draft in the lower price brackets that are really interesting. We'll go into some of the ones that bring great value. We don't have the time to go through all of them. But I'll go through who are in the top two brackets. Um, 125K, you've got Barbara Zam, Chris Gale, Mitchell Marsh, Sunil Narine, Kyron Pollard, Nicholas Poran, Tabray Shamsi, and David Warner. And the 100K reserve prize bracket, you've got Shakib Al-Hassan, Quinton Decock, Jai Richardson, and Andre Russell. The notable absentees from this overseas list uh, include Mitchell Stark, Josh Hazelwood, Pat Cummins, the Australian Seamers. It was reported previously by ESPN Crick Info they wouldn't be involved. Then the Times came in last minute and said they would be involved. I don't know where they got that from, but they aren't there. And I think, Charlie, that means there's kind of a vacuum for overseas Seamers, which is a problem for a lot of sides, which we'll get onto. But as we look at the top of this draft, who do you think are the players kind of in line say, for those top four or five picks? Who are the big names you think teams are going to go after first? I feel like Narayan is pretty much a shoe in there. Uh, he did pretty well last season for over Invincibles. He's having a pretty solid IPL thus far, a couple of games in. I think there are a few players out there who can do what he does. And he's going to be available for the whole comp, maybe by a couple at the end if he goes to the CPL. So with that in mind, I think he's probably a shoe in pretty early on. Maybe he goes back to Oval, maybe he goes elsewhere. Who knows? Olai potentially as well, Puran, Mitch Marsh, um, and maybe even Jai Richardson. I think he might go early, um, purely because there aren't that many gun overseas seamers available. And I think he's probably the best of the bunch. So is he worth that much money? In normal circumstances, he probably isn't. However, I think it's probably worth overpaying for players. And we'll get to that discussion a little bit later. But in this situation, I think Jai may go early. I think we're looking at a clear number one overall player. Do you think it's Andre Russell? I think that's where I'd land. I think it might be. Yeah, he was so obvious I didn't even mention him before because it just seemed like a foregone conclusion to me. But, you know, if Russell was available in a draft and get the first pick, he's going to be in the conversation. It's Andre Russell. Come on. Yeah, and I think for the London Spirit, that makes sense. He's a star name. I wonder if David Warner and Mitchell Marsh will be in play as well. They got good at availability, but we'll see. But yeah, I, th- I think the clear thing is there are some stars here. There are some real stars, but I do think there is a drop-off, especially at seam. You say Joe Richardson, 
Uh, it's probably the best guy there. But then you go down the seam ranks and, you know, you've got no one in the 125K or 100K price brackets. You've got at 75K, Amir, Bravo, Colton Nile, Meredith, uh, 60K. Uh, you've got Kane Richardson, 50K, Jason Berendorf. There's not a great deal of good seamers here. And I think that's the that's something that's really important to focus on, actually, because a lot of teams need a good seamer. I think we we probably go through the majority of teams. The Originals need a good seamer. The Fire need a good seamer. The Spirit could probably do with a really good seamer. The Superchargers could do with a really... Everyone is probably looking for a top-end overseas seamer. And suddenly, there's just none available that you'd be comfortable with taking in the first couple of rounds. And I think that brings up an interesting debate on how do you go about approaching this draft in terms of acquiring talent, but also drafting for need. Well, this is the thing, you see. It's quite interesting because on the one hand, you could say, well, there aren't that many good ones here, so I'm going to go really early for the guy I want. You know, if you identify that Richardson is your guy, maybe you go really early for him. On the other hand, you could say, well, they're all at a relatively low base price. I'm going to wait on them and get my seamer pretty low down. I'm going to pay 50K for you know, someone like Berendorf. And I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong way to go here. I think it's, it's quite an unusual situation to be in. I guess we'll have to see what teams do. But I can see both approaches happening. And I think different teams will take a different approach there. I, <laughs> I don't want to guess who's going to go where, but I, I, I've got an idea which teams will be taking that one in which direction. Yeah, I think Joe Richardson, in my mind, is probably worth an early pick. I think in the kind of round one, round two range, he would make sense. Bar that, I really don't see a seamer that I'm particularly comfortable with taking that early. I think what teams are going to have to understand in this draft is that with, I think it's probably fair to say, a low-end overseas talent pool available it's, it's not as high end as you've seen in previous draft you haven't got some superstars there a lot of the superstars are not going to be available i think it's important the teams realize where the value is with these players and they understand that there is a point in which to take a seamer and that's isn't probably for the second tier guys early on i think taking a nathan Coulton Isle or Kane richardson or whoever it is because they're your favorite seamer you need a seamer is not a good strategy I think, especially for sides like Welsh Fire, who have no talent, I think what this overseas list kind of demands you to do is basically acquire talent as much as possible early on, get the big names, get the big domestic stars, really push to build your talent pool, and then you hit the value with your overseas players later on. If you need a seamer, look, I think the round five to six range where you could have a DJ Bravo, a Riley Meredith, you know, all of these different players. I think that is probably the range, other than Jai Richardson, you should look at it. And I think teams who stretch and go out for Nathan Coulton-Isle in round three, rather than waiting in round five or six, and even if Coulton-Isle's not there, they could get Riley Meredith. I think that would be a mistake. So I think the really important thing for teams to understand is where is the value in this draft? And I think when you look at this, there's plenty of roles where I see, you know, I think there are players that you'd probably be worth taking in separate areas. For example, I think Seema, you probably won the middle rounds. I look at, middle-order batters, and I think you're more likely to go for those early. I think you look at, I don't know, a, a Mitchell Marsh, Kyron Pollard, Andre Russell, obviously they're top-end players. But then you've also got Glenn Phillips, Evan Lewis, um, players like that who I think I'd be comfortable taking uh, in that kind of round three to round five range. So maybe there's some, some batting talent there. And I think the really interesting one to talk about is actually leg spinners. Because I think 
the two most important things in T20 short form cricket to me are a gun seamer and a gun leg spinner. There's not many gun seamers in the draft. And the gun leg spinners haven't got particularly high reserve prices. Debray Shams, I'm really surprised he went in 125Ks up there. But, but then you look at the 50K range. Uh, in there, you have Winindu Hasaranga, who's a, who'd be a steal at that price. Utter, utter steal. And at 40K, you have Kays Ahmad. So you could get one of those guys at a very low base price. A very low base price. Now, the, the issue here is that Winindu Hasaranga is probably going to play two games. Kays Ahmad, however, intrigues me in that regard. So I think there could be good value. You're probably going to have to take him before the 40K range. There could be good value waiting for a leg spinner like Kays because even though Afghanistan might not have good availability, Afghanistan don't select him enough. So here's an interesting situation you find yourself in where actually you could wait for a top-end leg spinner and potentially get really good value. That's the thing. If you go even deeper with no base price, you get the likes of Zahid Khan, Noor Ahmad, Ish Sodi. You know, these are guys who... I mean, two of which are very young, but Ish Sodi is a proven leg spinner around the world. With no base price, you can wait and get a reliable guy there. Adam Zampa's at 60K as well. Mm. I mean, Adam Zampa at 60K is very good value, and he's going to be available for the whole comp we're expecting. So there's a lot of very good leg spinners here. I do wonder if Shamsi may have priced himself out of a deal here with this in yeah. mind. I don't think he's quite 125K player at this point. I'm very fond of him, but I don't think he's that much money. Uh, when you've got... When you've got these guys available for cheaper, I'm, I'm waiting for them. And I think you can afford to do that. I do wonder if taking Shamdi there would be a bit of a, a market inefficiency. This is the thing. We talk about market inefficiencies all the time. Would you prefer to pay 125k to Debray Shamsi and get a lower-end domestic player? Or would you rather like to spend 125k, say, on a Joe Clark or a Tom Banton or, a, or Andre Russell, Karen Pollard, whoever, and then take Nora Ahmad in round 13? The difference between the players, there is a difference, but the amount of quality leg spinners in the no base price area is incredible. Uh, let me point, you, know, you mentioned a couple to the Noramas, Ahir Karnish Sodi. Fouad Ahmed's also there, the Australian leg spinner who's, who is older, but has a lot of talent. There's four really good leg spinners you can get in round 13. And you also look at the rest of the base price list, really interesting. I think Blessing Mizrabani's interesting and probably is a backup overseas, but he's also no base price. Uh, Azam Khan is the big one for me, the middle order player from Pakistan. I don't know if Pakistan are going to select him for the Asia Cup. I imagine they, they probably should. Uh, I don't know if they will. So he might have some availability and a, a base price. He might be remarkably valuable. So yeah, I think there's lots of really interesting options. And ultimately, I think that's where I think you have to kind of go about your draft strategy slightly differently. You have to understand where the value is. And I think the clever teams are probably going to go slightly less money on the overseas players. Take the value now. Take Nor Ahmad at 30, 40K, whatever it is, rather than to Bray Shamsi. Take your seamer in the kind of mid-round ranges. Maybe if you have the opportunity to go get a gun guy, but take the value now, and when the overseas player pool is better next year, that's when you can kind of reassess your strategy, I think. So I think the really clever teams are going to look at value, and I think that's an interesting discussion to have. And I think those market inefficiencies with those base price leg spinners, those kind of lower-end players, I think that, again, there are loads of really interesting guys in the lower price brackets. I mean, you've got Josh Inglis at 40K, which could be really, really interesting. You know, I know these aren't necessarily elite players, but Colin Monroe at 50K is also interesting. Riley Rousseau, Vanuka Rajapaska. Uh, there's loads of interesting guys in this kind of range. And, you know, their availability might not be perfect, but, but there are some really interesting guys. Uh, and I do think that 
finding the value this year when there aren't a great deal of top, top end overseas players is the strategy to take. And I think the best example to look into this probably is the Welsh Fire because they're the ultimate blank slate. We've talked before about how the Welsh Fire don't have a great deal of talent. They have Johnny Bairstow, who's great, cornerstone franchise piece if he's not playing test cricket. Beyond that, they have David Payne, Jake Ball, Ollie Pope, and the rest. They don't really have cornerstone players. So if they attack their overseas players in the valuable ranges, they fill the seam of void in round five, six, they take your leg spinner later on, maybe they go in that round three to five range in the middle order player like Glenn Phillips, bring him back. That gives them flexibility to attack domestic talent at the top. One, two, Joe Clark, Tom Banton. We've talked about that a lot. Take Joe Clark, right to match Tom Banton with his second round pick. You build the talent there and you attack the value of overseas later on. I think that's the way teams might go. So I think that is really interesting. I think we should probably look out for that. I think the clever teams are probably going to surprise you with their overseas picks. I also think when you look at the talent available here, there are probably going to be a few reaches as well. And what I mean by reach is a player in the early rounds who maybe isn't worth that value, but you take anyway because maybe there isn't the kind of players available and they might not seem like that value. Now, in our latest mock draft, Delroy Rawlins went to the Manchester Originals in round three. Now, that seems like a reach. When we put out our top 50 domestic player board, we got a bit of stick for putting Delray that high. Suddenly, it ends up in round three, and Delray is a reach in round three, but because you haven't got the overseas talent necessarily there and there's better value elsewhere, you know, you kind of take that swing on a left-handed, aggressive middle-order player that the originals don't really have and kind of go after it. They've already, they already took Nicholas Poor and Karen Pollard, so they had, you know, they have their two overseas players there. You, you, they needed an overseas seamer, the place to attack, round to five, seven range, which is where they went, they took DJ Bravo. They're kind of looking at it and, well, Tom Buttonson's off the board, Joe Clark's off the board. Liam Dawson's off the board. You know, I might have gone Tom Cola Camel potentially over Rawlins, but I think you look at how that side is built and they might look at reaching for players. And I do think that's something that when this draft comes out, people are going to need to be prepared for, Charlie. They're, they're probably going to need to be prepared for the fact there are some players going very, very high compared to what their value is worth. And I think that's because the domestic talent pool isn't particularly elite. I think this is the thing. The majority of the elite domestic guys out there have been retained. There's a couple of exceptions. Obviously, Clark, Banton, you know, maybe Dawson, Colin Cavmore, Thompson. That's probably the top-end domestic guys available. Beyond that, there aren't that many amazing domestic players available. Now, that's further compounded by the discussion we just had about the overseas players. A lot of them, particularly seamers and spinners, you can get a little bit later on. There's not a particularly great deal of high-end overseas talent available either. So, if you're going to wait on them, you've got to pick someone higher up, and that's going to have to be a domestic guys. You know, with the shortage of elite talent there, you have to prioritise getting the ones you want in as early as you can. And if that means playing a Liam Dawson 125,000, so be it. You know, that's what I did with London Spirit. It, may, it might seem pretty weird to you, and you know, in, a, in an open draft, it would never happen. But given that this trial has been half filled, particularly with a lot of pretty decent players who, for my money, have been underpaid with their retention salaries. You know, look at like Birmingham Phoenix, Will Smead retained on an absolute steal of like 50K, I think, 40, 50K in Will Smead, which is yeah. crazy money. There's quite a lot of instances of that kind of thing happening. So because they've got such good value with those retentions, you've got to get someone in the higher, in the higher rounds. And 
you know, if that's a player who maybe isn't as good as the guys below them on the draft board, then so be it. You've just got to get the best available. Yeah, and I think that's where the teams who've retained a lot of players have a natural advantage. And the Birmingham Phoenix basically have a really good side already there. You'd want another really good seamer. They took Jai Richardson in our mock in the seventh overall pick. I think that's fine. They took Tom Colacamor in round three. And then they just took the value throughout. And I think teams like the Brave and the Phoenix, who uh, they have full sides available. They have lots of good players. They have lots of good players on really cheap deals. And that means when you're getting the composite value of Will Smead, who's arguably a 100K, 75K player in that 50K range, you can accept the overpaying for someone. I think that is something that, you know, the, the Phoenix are lucky enough to have. The Southern Brave are in a position really where they only have four picks in the draft. We know that they're probably going to take Quinton to cock with the eighth. So they basically have three picks there that they can kind of do whatever they want with. They can just take the value and they'll probably get some decent players out of it because they don't need to go chasing roles. And I think that puts them in a good position. And that's where I think sides like the Welsh Fire suddenly find themselves in a bit of a position. Um, because when the player pool kind of falls off a little bit, if they take two straight overseas at the top, there's probably not going to be many good domestic players available for them after that. I think that's where things get really, really tricky. So... I know I speak a lot about the Welsh Fire, and I'm going to put an article out soon about how I think they should approach this draft. But I do think that's an interesting thing, is when you have all these reaches and you don't have a great talent pool, how do you go about building a core? And I think for me, as I've said, it's all about talent acquisition. Go build your core, pick the best players you can, the Bantons, the Clarks, the Glenn Phillips, get those guys, and then take the value later on. And I think that's what we'll probably see. We'll probably see some reaches uh, and I think be prepared for that. Be prepared for Ian Cobain to go way earlier than you think. Be prepared to, for Liam Dawson to go way earlier than you think. I think we had Liam Dawson going end of round two to the London Spirit in our last mock draft. Would not be surprised if he went fourth overall to the Northern Superchargers. So keep in mind there are going to be some really outlandish things you're going to see. Be prepared for it. Let's talk about the right to match usage. Right to match is very simple. Basically, uh, if a team has had a player on their roster previously uh, and another team picks them in uh, a price bracket where the other team has a pick, they have the ability to play the right to match card where they can basically steal that player from the other team and have them in their slot in the same price bracket range. Um, Notable right to match teams are probably the Southern Brave who are going to pick Quinton Cock with the eighth pick, as we said, they're probably right to match anything else. Other right to matches to watch Tom Banton to the Welsh Fire uh, is probably one that might be worth looking for. I do wonder if the Manchester Originals consider right to matching Joe Clark as well. I don't think they will, but that's an option. I think right to matching might be important with this talent pool because if you have the opportunity, say, for the Welsh Fire, to get a quality player at the second overall pick and then know you're getting Tom Banton in the second round when there's not too many high-value players, you're probably very likely to pull that trigger. Well, you would hope so, wouldn't you? But this is the Welsh file we're talking about. I believe (laughs) in both of their previous drafts, they've gone with two overseas in the first two rounds straight away. And I do wonder if they're not going to write to match Banton just because... I feel like if they'd wanted to keep him, 
had a 125k slot available for him. So either mm. it didn't think he was worth it, or he didn't want to stay. And I do wonder if they don't want to keep a player who doesn't want to play for them. I or, would. I still, I still do it, but I don't know if they will. Or it's a game of chicken, isn't it? Because ultimately, you're not signing Tom Banton to the 125k pick. You're releasing him to the player pool because you know you could, you have the option with the second overall pick. He's probably not going first. You know you're going to get him at the 125k range anyway. So you just have to play a game of chicken with him and like, look, we're offering you this. Maybe it's 100k. Maybe it's 75k. We're offering you this. Take it. Leave it. If he takes it, great. You've got him at a bargain. If not, great, you're going to get him again at 125k. Yes, he wins, but you still get the player. So, I, I mean, there, there is a debate here. I think they should clearly do that. But They again, should. I don't know if they will. This is, this is the thing. I don't know if they will do that. But I definitely would. No question about it. I just wonder if, you know, this is the team that's paying Lewis to play more than Ross Mead. You, you have to question if they're going to do the obvious thing. Yes. <laughs> that is an excellent point. I do think the RTM is interesting. I think we'll see it used. I think it'll probably be used a couple of times. I'm not sure. I mean, the Phoenix might have used it on Adam Zampa at some point in the draft. It wouldn't surprise me. It would make sense. Um, So he might be a candidate as well. Um, So, yeah, it's a little bit unpredictable, but I think that's something that's worth talking about uh, as well. I think finally, we, we briefly touched on this. I think we've talked about value for overseas players. Where is the value? I think... The big thing with this draft pool is we know that overseas availability is not good. There's a reason Shaheen Sharafridi isn't in this draft. I guess the question is, when you know you're only going to get Winindu Hasaranga for two games and he's available at the 50k price bracket, are you comfortable with taking him, knowing that you have the opportunity to retain him next year? And you could pick up a leg spinner for base price as your fourth overseas. Is that worth it? Well, I think we'll see teams go about it in two different ways. I think some teams will consider that. I think they'll say, you know, Hasarang is elite. We can keep him for years to come. He might even play two games this year. But, you know, they'll say that that's worth it because we can get a Norama then for pretty cheap in the wildcard draft. So in future, they're sorted there. Some other teams might take the other approach and say, well, we're going to get a slightly less good guy who's going to be available for the whole competition because we value the consistency. I think the Phoenix, for example, might take that route. Mm. Um, but... I don't personally know which I prefer, if I'm honest. I feel like they're both perfectly valid approaches in their own way. I think it depends on the level of the player that you're signing. If, you're, if it's Hasaranga, who is mm. clearly an elite leg spinner who can bat, I think he's probably worth doing that for. I think he's the kind of the guy you want to lock down for the future. And, and you can get someone else. He obviously isn't as good, but you know can cover that role in the wildcard draft. I think it's worth it. But then there's, there are some other guys who maybe I don't think are worth that. So I don't know, is the honest truth. It's quite a debate, I think. I think if you can get the value for certain positions, do it. But I think the only positions you're really looking at and the only players I really think about are Hasaranga um, or Kays, potentially, because I don't think you can take... Say, I mean, I'm not saying I value him and I wouldn't pick him anyway, but say Baba Razam was the guy you really wanted. And we know his availability is terrible. He's in 125k. You're not taking him if he's not going to be available at all at 125k. However, if a player, if you valued that player, maybe at the 75 to 60k range, maybe you would. Maybe that's the debate you have. Again, I'm not saying that's Babar Azam. I don't think either of us would draft him in any instance, no. really. But you see my point. I think the value is for these guys in these lower ranges who have iffy availability. Um, the Winindy Hasarangles of the world, the Kays Ahmad's of the world. 
um, maybe even, you know, there's other guys in there, the Banuka Rajabadjka, um, Azam Khan, all of these guys. Um, I think there is potential value in taking them in the later rounds and accepting that maybe they only played two or three games, you have a backup overseas. But if you can get them cheap enough and you can retain them and you can keep them, that's really interesting. So I think those are the kind of key things we're taking from this overseas list. Some of the key trends we think we're probably going to see in this draft. I think the, the last thing we'll do before we go is take a look through uh, some of the picks and some of the um, strategies that we took in our latest mock draft, which you can find on our Twitter now, at Podcast 100, and kind of talk about how we would attack what's going on. Um, and I think there's some really good examples of how to attack this situation in terms of talent acquisition and drafting in the right places. Uh, we talked about the Welsh Fire a lot, so I'll move on from the Welsh Fire. I think a team that's really interesting is the Oval Invincibles. Now, now they are a team who have an, an elite like domestic roster. Right? They have Sam Curran, Jason Roy, Sam Billings, Tom Clone, Will Jacks, Sackham Mood, Reese Topley. You could basically make half of an England T20 team with all of those guys. I don't think anyone would bat an eyelid. They have a really elite list of guys which means they don't have many high picks available, which is really good for them, but they don't have any overseas players retained. So how do you go about attacking the value? Well, they've done it perfectly. They take someone on the at the top, an elite player, a guy who offers you some top order hitting. Uh, he's not the same battery was, but offers that. Then you've got a true gun spinner who turns it both ways, who's going to cause lots of problems. You can bowl at all phases. So there you are, you've got your gun player. And then later on, they're able to attack the value with overseas players. In round seven, we have them taking Sandeep Lamachane. Now, we talked about leg spinners. There's available ones in round 12, 13, 14, whatever. But Sandeep Lamachane is a really good player, and I think that's good value. At round nine, they go get their third overseas with Banuka Rajapaska. We've seen in the IPL what he can do. I personally prefer Azam Khan. But, but anyway, we, we can go through that debate, Charlie. But you get Banushka Rajapaska there. And then suddenly you've got three really good overseas. You've hit the valley correctly. And with their last three domestic picks, they pick up Joe Weatherly, Joe Demley, and Gus Atkinson. All guys who can play a role in your team and all who have the possibility uh, of attacking something. And because they have a really good roster of domestic players and they've hit the overseas valley well, they didn't have to reach for domestic players. So they're in a really good situation. You actually put that team together for the mock draft. And I think the way you went about it there was really really clever and I think actually the Oval Invincibles with all of those quality players retained and a overseas list that isn't particularly strong come out of this looking very very good indeed to be honest with you I just more or less emulated the strategy they did in 2019 really they went in the Rhine early and then got some pretty good money ball picks lower down I think they fit Lamachani fairly low down first time around anyway uh, Riley Rousseau was a guy I considered as well but basically I wanted a leggy uh, and a middle order batter to accompany the Rhine uh, and I just saw that there was value to be had in waiting on them. So I waited on the Rhine. I think he had a 60K reserve price. So that was really the only point I could draft him. But I think he made sense there. He was a good fit for them. And uh, Roger Paxer as well was pretty similar. I wanted the middle order guy, his reserve of 50K. So I took him there. And then I could just fill in some gaps of the best value domestic guys available. I think Weverly, Denley, and Atkinson all kind of, they offer you pretty decent squad options, I think. I don't know if they didn't necessarily start, but a decent value for money where I got them. I just feel like that squad basically was already complete bar a couple of additions here or there and I just waited and getting the right ones so I think if you just wait and are patient know what you want you can get it it's that simple yeah and I think that's just the correct way of going about things I think it's about the invincibles in a really good position by the way 
Gus Atkinson, I I really like for a couple of different teams. Um, he was in the kind of late twenties of our draft board, so I think he's a he's not an elite seamer yet, but I see really good value for a couple of teams taking him as what he offers with his pace, his bounce, the way he bowls. This is just you know, a specific instance, but I really like his fit with the Welsh fire or a team with really long square boundaries with his ability to get some bounce and hurry players up and all of that. I think a player like that is really interesting. Um, and I think that's just a, just a pick I like. And I think the, the great thing about having that flexibility and not really having to fill needs in this draft means you can kind of take those players where you're like, oh, I really like that fit for us. He could be really special. You can take a couple of flings at things because you know you don't have to depend on them. That's where the Oval Invincibles, the Southern Brave, the Phoenix, all these teams are in really good positions. You know, the Phoenix, again, you know, they go get Matt Milnes in round nine, Kyle Cameron in round three, and they take Zahir Khan uh, in round 13, taking, you know, taking that base price. Uh, inefficiency there you are able as one of those teams to go take swings on guys and have a look at good fits like Gus Atkinson Joe Weatherly for the Invincibles and it's great you can take the value you've got a side there already great if you're the Welsh Fire again sorry to dump on the Welsh Fire you can't really take guys like that too high because you have to fill all of these roles in the side, and you can't really take those high upside flings all the time. So I think, again, we come back to it, teams who've retained a lot of players are in a good position. Uh, and I think the other team I'd like to finish on, actually, is the, is the London Spirit. Because, Charlie, we talked about reaches, hitting the value for overseas players, um, and talent acquisition. And that's what we talked about um, throughout this process. The London Spirit, I think come into this draft with a really exciting opportunity. They have you know, a really good core retained. Crawley, Wood, Crane, Lawrence, Cullen, Wheel. Add Glenn Maxwell and Morgan to that. You've got a really good core already there. There's a really exciting side already lined up. First overall, you take Andre Russell. That's your second overseas. Great. Looking in a really good position. So suddenly you've got Maxwell and Russell and Morgan and all these players. But you need another gun seaman. There's no real seamers in this draft. So naturally, people are well... Where do we get our overseas seamer? That might be a position where teams think, oh, we need to go get our seamer. Let's go take the best one available. Let's take Nathan Coulton at the end of round two. That didn't happen here. We had them ending up going in round nine for Jason Berendorf. That is attacking the value. You get Jason Berendorf in. He's not an elite gun guy, but he offers a lot, especially with the new ball. That's a really enticing price point. So that means that you're hitting the value at the right position. You're taking him seven rounds lower than you might if you reached. And that does create some reaches, but it does give you the opportunity to attack domestic talent. Now, final pick around two for Liam Dawson is a reach. Yes, and that's what we did with the London Spirit. But ultimately, that's just taking the best option available. And by waiting on your overseas player, by taking the value, you have the opportunity to take Liam Dawson which offers you something great. And then in round five, round six, because again, you're waiting for the value. You get Jordan Thompson and Pat Brown. Jordan Thompson's really exciting, adds some power to the, to the lower order, lots of flexibility. And Pat Brown has loads of upside as another seamer. That's by playing the game, building up a great deal of value. Absolutely, absolutely. I feel like you look at that and you think, what is happening there? You know, why is that happening? Why is Dawson going so high? Why is Brown going so high? But... 
honestly, I did spirit. And at the time, it felt very strange to me picking guys like Dawson so early. But it just made sense at the time. Picking your best domestic player early is just the obvious way to go when you think about it. Why would he pay that much money for, say, Berendorf or Coulter Nile when they're not worth it? You can wait for them, get them later. If you take them early, then all you're doing is eradicating any chance you have of getting good domestic players because they'll be gone by your next pick. You know, that Liam Dawson pick was uh, their second pick. for mm. The next pick is in round five with Jordan Thompson and Pat Brown. So if you don't get Dawson there, he's definitely going. And that would, be a, would have been a big loss. So if you don't get those domestic guns early, then you're not going to get any good domestic players. I'll say not the best of the, of the crop. Whereas if you take your overseas guys early, then you're potentially wasting a lot of value there because the talent pool there, it's not amazing, but if you look at the cheaper options, there are quite a lot of pretty good ones to be had for cheaper. So make use of that depth there because if you don't get Berendorf there, there are other guys who can come in at the same price point who aren't particularly different in quality. But with the domestic players, there isn't that depth. You can't afford to do that. So that's the interesting thing here with the London Spirit is, and I think it's pretty clear, would you prefer to have Liam Dawson and, say, Jason Berendorf, or would you rather have Nathan Coulton and Roloff van der Merwe? Exactly. That's, 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 the that's the situation. And I think teams need to understand that. And I think this is where nuance comes into things because so often you think, okay, we've got a draft board. Who is the best player available? Really simple. And I do think a lot of the time that's the best way to go, not to overcomplicate things. But when there isn't much value at the top and you need to fill these needs at some point, you've got to play a patient game. You've got to be more nuanced than just taking the best player. That's where this kind of low-end overseas domestic pool brings you. I think, as we've said, you've got to take the value. And I think that is our biggest takeaway ahead of 100 draft. You have to take the value at every spot. And if you do that, and if you understand what the pool is, where you can get players, I think teams can play this smartly and get a huge advantage. 100%. 100%. I look at teams here, and I worry that they're not going to do that. But I think our draft has shown, our mock draft has shown, that there is immense value to be had in taking the value, in waiting for guys, in not over-committing to guys who probably aren't worth as much as they are in the overseas department and committing to the best guy on your domestic draft board as early as you possibly can. If you do that, you will probably end up with a decent team. Will it be the most amazingly balanced team ever? Maybe not. But if you've recruited properly and retained properly, that shouldn't be a worry for you. And if you can't balance your team then, then to be honest, that's probably your fault for not retaining properly, not drafting properly back in 2021 and 2019. Ultimately, if you can't balance it, it's on you. You just got to pick the best players and hope it works out. I, re- I really do think it is that simple. I know it is a lot more nuanced to it than that, but if you want me to boil it down to one point, take the best player available at any point you have in the draft. I think that's ultimately it. If you haven't got a balanced side now, if you haven't got an already balanced core then you can't sacrifice building a strong talent base for having a side that looks like it might function. Like, I don't think that's how you can play it. I think even if you are strengthening a strength, that's how you need to go about things. So interested to see how sides will go. I think we've gone through the main points. Take talent, take value where it is at. There'll be lots of reaching. Um, I think understanding where the market inefficiencies will be is important, but this is a fun one. Who do you think 
is in the best position to have a draft, Charlie. Who do you think is the team that you think will come out of this really strongly? Well, I'm going to avoid saying Southern Brave because they've basically got a team already drafted. They've only got a few picks. It, uh, and Phoenix also feels like a bit of a cop-out. I know they've got more picks, but what they've retained is so strong that it almost feels, you know, like a cop-out to, to, to say them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ignore those teams for now. Unironically, I think London Spirit have got quite a good opportunity here. I think they've retained a very strong domestic core, plus Glenn Maxwell. That's a pretty good start. If you get Russell first, in your middle order of Russell, Maxwell, Morgan, Dan Lawrence, that's pretty darn spicy. That's seriously good stuff right there. Um, you know, you've got guys like Cullen and Wheel, two very good young seamers there. You only need, maybe need one more, and you've got very strong seamer type, plus Mark Wolverine is available. You've got likes of Crawley coming in too, Mason Crane, a very good leg spinner. I do feel like they've got a lot of bases covered there. And if they attack this draft properly, they could be a genuine contender. So I think Spirit have a pretty good shot at this. Yeah, and Crawley might not be available much, but I don't see a situation where both Crawley and Lawrence are playing Test cricket all summer this year. I feel like one of them is probably going to drop out the side. I don't know how much Test cricket Mark Wood's going to play either, potentially. He might be done at this point. We, we really don't know. So... You have that situation. If you walk into the start of the tournament with a bowling attack of Liam Dawson, Mason Crane, Glenn Maxwell, Mark Wood, Jason Barrendorf, and Blake Cullen, I think you're cooking. I think you're cooking, especially when you have that, that, that batting attack. So I, I really do think the London Spirit are in a really exciting situation. And I think there are certain sides that you know, I'm not so high on. I think the Manchester Originals are kind of in a worrying situation here. I think the fact that there's no high-end seamers, there's no Lockie Ferguson or Mitchell Stark or Pat Cummins makes them look uh, <laughs> makes them makes them look really weak. In fact, because they desperately need a seamer, the only seamer they have is Fred Clarson. Uh, and you've got that great, really cheap spinner tap, by the way, as well. You've got. Tom Hartley at 50k, Matt Parkinson at 75, Calvin Harrison at right at the end of the draft. You've got a really cheap spin attack, but you just have Fred Clarson. So they're in a situation where they're probably going to have to take a domestic seamer and they're probably going to have to take an overseas seamer. I wonder if Jai Richardson just comes into play third pick overall because he's the guy. I think that would be interesting. But then where do they go get the seamer if they don't take Jai Richardson? they're going to have to wait until round five. And then are you really going to have to have a seam attack of Fred Clarson, Chris Wood, and Nathan Coulter-Nile? Is that the situation you want to find yourself in? I think that's <laughs> that's a problem. Well, the thing is, with the way they've got about their retentions, that they've kind of set themselves up for that a little bit. You look at their retentions, and they've got a lot of very good value there. You look at Overton, Hartley, Lamanby, Ackerman, Madsen, Clarkson, Harrison. Right? All of these guys are good value there. However, with the exception of about two, they're all middle-order batters, and only a couple of them are going to be able to play at once. Only one of them is a seamer, and that's Fred Glasson, who probably doesn't get into your starting 11, if we're being honest. So, hey, don't forget about Jamie Overton. Statistically, <laughs> the worst T20 bowler of all time is right yeah. there. <laughs> yes, that is very true. But uh, yeah, okay. So you're seeing attack currently is Clarkson, Overton, and potentially Ollie Robinson if he ever plays. Um, which and even Ollie Robinson, to be fair, isn't a particularly strong. Good. He can only put in the power play. So 
they've kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit here. I assume they're hoping that they'll be able to get a few more gun overseas seamers in the draft than are currently available. But that's the game you play. That's the risk you take. Unfortunately, they've got the situation now where you think they're going to have to sign at least two seamers. Um, I took them in the draft and... Yeah, I realised quite late on that I've made a few interesting selections and that their team attack currently is Robinson, DJ Bravo, Chris Wood, um, Klaassen and Overton. It's not amazing, um, but genuinely, I didn't think there was much more I could have done with that, really, beyond taking Richardson as my first overall pick there for them. Otherwise, that was really the lot I had. And I don't particularly see them straying too far from this format, really. I don't see what else they do. I think they're going to have to go, you know, death by spin, aren't they? They're going to have to bowl 12 sets of Harrison, Parkinson, and Hartley. And they're probably going to have to bowl a decent number of sets from Ackerman. Do you, I mean, I think there's probably a situation where they bowl five deliveries, one set of seam in the power play, probably try and sneak through 10 of Hartley, five of Ackerman, five of Harrison, I mean, they're just going to have to backload one seamer for the death and hope that maybe Hartley and Harrison, maybe a little bit of Parkinson can deal with later sets. But this is basically what I was thinking when I was drafting their team. And that was also why I picked Pollard and Rawlins fairly early on, because I wanted some more bowling options who weren't necessarily bowlers, if that makes sense, because I, I needed as many options as I could get. So I think I thought Pollard's bowling would go quite nicely on the old Trafford track. I felt like Rawlins could offer you a little bit if he plays. I wanted DJ Bravo because I felt like he would be a good dev option to have there. And I think the way he bowls in general to pace off cutters and slow balls that he has in his locker would also suit Old Trafford pretty well. So I think I identified the correct types of talent for this team. The question is, when you don't have many seamers available, I don't know what else you can do. When you've got only got five picks available and three of them are in the first three rounds you can't really ever pay with too many seamers. So I don't particularly know what you do there, but I, I, I stand by what I did in all honesty. No, so do I. I, I completely get it. I think you probably go Jai, maybe third of all if you get him. And I know we talked about not reaching, but you might just have to do that. And that'd be fine because he offers you something with the bat as well. And then if not, you go for a round five seamer and you just take the hit, I guess. But that, that's it. Your strength is spin. Your strength is Old Trafford. You've got Butler and Salt. And if you go get, you know, you go get maybe a Pollard as well, you've got some power there. That's how you're going to have to play it. You're just going to have to win all four games at Old Trafford and hope nothing, it doesn't rain. So final thing, Charlie, before we go, is there any specific player to team fits you really love and you really want to happen? There's, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? There's a few guys who I really want to see play for Bad Is it Bob? Bo- well, <sighs> Come on, who do you reckon it is? <laughs> is it by any chance Adam Zampa that may be one of them yes that may be one of them there's two more have a guess so obviously it's Tom Banton for one or Tom Colocan more it's, it's Tom Banton yeah yeah uh, Tom Banton at seven would be great I don't think it, he will fall that far but no. if Welsh Fire as I'm predicting don't exercise the right to match then it's not impossible he falls that far and I think Phoenix would be an amazing fit for him because Smeed, as we all know, has had a few documented issues with spin lately. Tom Banton is your shield there. Tom Banton is also his Somerset partner. It just makes so much sense. He's a high intent player. He suits the way Phoenix play. He ticks all of the boxes for them. 
Um, so that would be brilliant. I think Killer Cavill will probably end up going there because he, I guess, is also a yeah. spin-hitting opener and flexible batter. So I think that will be the play there. Zampa, I would just love to see there as well. I think he'll want the spinner and he's just such a funny guy. So I want Zampa. The other one, Joy Richardson, I think they need yeah. another seamer. I think they need another seamer. Ideally one who can bat as well because the way Phoenix play, they're a high-intent team. You want to be able to bat deep. And I think last year they had Milner at eight. It wasn't ideal. So yeah. I think having a guy like Richardson who can come in eight and be a genuinely good option there and extend that death hitting even further beyond Benny Howell and Chris Benjamin, I think that would be such a good option for them. So for me, he is a perfect fit. And if he goes there, brilliant. I think that the player fits that I really like uh, and you know what I'm about to say, is the traditional Ed Farrer base price overseas player. I think, go in, we've talked about our base price kings, Fahd Ahmad, Noor Ahmad, Sahir Khan, Ish Sodi. If you want a leg spinner, you want an impact player, maybe you're, say, the Phoenix and Zampa goes early or you don't really want to spend that big on him. Maybe that's the situation you go in for. Maybe if you're the Oval Invincibles and you decide to wait until round 12, um, rather than take Sandy Lomachani in round seven, you wait for a leg spin. I think that's interesting. The Northern Superchargers might also be an interesting spot for somebody. So I think those are the fits I really like. Base price overseas, baby. We're back and we're better than ever. I love it. Uh, we're really excited for this draft. We'll have loads of reaction on the day and loads of stuff going on at Podcast Under on Twitter. We'll let you know what's going on with our draft reaction. But for now, and for our final draft preview, thank you very much for listening. We'll speak to you soon.